Those 12 apostles, the very first Eucharist, had a very similar experience to the rest of us whenever we receive the Eucharist. They're probably like, well, it looks like bread. Smells like bread. Tastes like bread. Their experience of that first Eucharist wasn't different than ours. I think sometimes we think that, man, wouldn't it have been great be at that first, that first Eucharist, the Last Supper? It wasn't any different. We get the exact same communion. The only theological difference is they received the living Christ and we received the resurrected Christ. That's a really complicated theological digression. I'm not going to go into that right now, but a slight difference. But their experience of it was exactly the same. They didn't taste anything different. They didn't notice anything different. Remember how many people saw Jesus' miracles and just disregarded them. So seeing is not believing. Actually, believing changes the way we see. Remember, Mother Teresa would would care for the poor. She said, why? Because I see Christ in them. She's like, well, that would be nice if I walked down and saw a poor person I actually saw Christ in them. No, 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 no. She, she didn't see like an old Indian woman dying on the street like, like with a beard and robes like Jesus. It was her faith that allowed her to see the truth about that person. It didn't, it didn't change her, her actual physical sight. There's a, there's a spiritual law. The, the Latin term for it is lex arandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. It's not a law like an imposed law, but it's just a kind of a law of nature, an observed law. The way that we pray changes the way that we believe, which changes the way that we live. But any one of those can affect the other. I change the way that I, that I worship, that I pray, it's going to change the way I believe, for good or for ill. I had a buddy who was a professor and he said a friend, a student, former student, wrote him an email and said, hey, I stopped believing in, in God. I'm an atheist now. These are my reasons. I'd like you to answer these questions. He just wrote back and said, hey, when did you stop going to Mass? He said, well, it's been a few months. He's like, okay, start going to Mass again. Emails him a couple months later. Okay, I'm, go- I'm going back to Mass, but I have some questions still. I'm not an atheist. The way we pray changes the way we believe. The way we live affects the way we believe. The way we believe can change the way we live. How do the apostles respond to that first Eucharist? They said, I don't get it, but I believe it, and I'm going to allow this belief to change the way I live. And what did they do? They all went out and got martyred. So strongly did they believe that. Not because they had this so powerful experience on that first Eucharist. They're like, I would do anything for you, Lord. No, we know that's not the truth. An hour later, they're running away. None of them were there at the cross, except for John. So it wasn't, it wasn't the power of that first Eucharist that made them heroes. It wasn't the power of that first Eucharist that forced them to believe a certain way. Last year, the U.S. bishops inaugurated a three-year Eucharistic revival for the United States of America. 
is something that used to happen a lot more frequently. There's Eucharistic congresses and people would just come together from all over the place and have these huge masses and celebrations. We haven't had one for a long, long time. And the bishops, I think, responding to the recent study, uh, polls that have shown that less than 30% of Catholics even believe in the true presence, like, we got to do something. So we're going to do a Eucharistic revival. It's a little bit ironic, right? A Eucharistic revival. To revive means to resuscitate, to bring back to life. You can't, you can't bring the Eucharist back to life. It is life. That's life. There's no greater life than that. No, it's not the Eucharist that needs reviving. It's us. We need, we need reviving. Because the Eucharist isn't, it doesn't have the power that, that it's supposed to because we're not allowing it to change the way that we live. The way that we believe and the way that we live are so interconnected. There was a, a, a Eucharistic movement at the, the end of the 18th 1800s and the the movement was to get people to receive communion more frequently this is something that popes had had been talking about come on you guys you got to receive communion people that's why the law there's still there's still the church law that you got to receive communion once a year and people would do the bare minimum we are like so good at doing the bare minimum are we do the bare minimum. They go to communion once a year. It's like, well, no, that's the bare minimum. We want you to go more. You need Jesus. You need to come frequently. You have to be in a state of grace, but you got to come frequently. And there's, there's campaigns and congress, congresses and revivals and preaching and touring and all sorts of things. Nothing ever, nothing ever really changed it until, until Pope Pius X, 1905, changed the age of first communion. He's like, I'll get the kids. I'll get the kids on board and, and we'll, we'll, start, we'll start there. So he made a little bit of headway there, the kids. And then it was in the mid-50s mid that the Eucharistic fast was changed. It used to be midnight. Some of you might remember that. On well, the 50s, it was changed to three hours before communion. That's still something. I mean, you still got to think about that. Am I going to go to communion today or not? In the 60s, it was changed to one hour before communion. That's when everybody started coming to communion because we changed something that affected the way I live and now, okay, now I can, now I can go to communion because I don't have to fast, basically, is what kind of happened. But I, I say that not to make any, any judgment on the communion fast, but to say we need to change. We want to change our belief. We want to change our hearts. We've got to change something that we do some, some way that we live is going to affect the way that we believe. I'm not, I'm not as worried about you guys, right? You're here at 7 o'clock on a Thursday, perfectly good Thursday evening, could be doing a million other things, but you're here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You're here to enter into the holy, sacred triduum. But we all, all of us, are and should be concerned about the next generation, the first generation was 12 guys in a room with Jesus. And they went on to change the world. And in the last several generations, we've seen decline each year in faith practice and belief and understanding and living the truths of the church and believing in the primary truth of the church, Jesus is present in the Holy Eucharist. How do we 
pass that on to the next generation. Well, I don't, I don't think it's just talking about it. I don't, I don't think it's just saying, hey, you know, Billy, did you know that Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist? Oh, okay, that's great, Mom, thanks. But when Billy sees you preparing for Mass, what does he see? When your kids, when your grandkids see you, hear you talking about the Mass, talking about the faith, talking about Jesus, what do they see? If your kids, if your friends, if your family sees you, they know you missed Mass last week, and then you say, well, I, gotta, I can't go to communion. That, that says to them, whoa. Something the way that you're living is now affecting the way that somebody else is believing. Wow, they're, they're not going to go to communion just because they missed Mass? Oh, yeah, no, i got to go to confession first. Oh, you got to go to confession first? That changes somebody. Some of you notice that when I celebrate the, the Eucharist, after I consecrate the host, I keep my fingers together. That was in the, in the, the old rubrics that was, that was prescribed. That was what the priest had to do. In the, in the new rubrics, it's not required anymore. But uh, the reason why I do it is this. Because my mother, she fell away from the Lord for, for many years. In the early 70s, she was just starting to come back she got caught up in the, in the Jesus movement. And then she was, she was kind of exploring different churches. She was finding some very, very empty, you know, kind of situations. And she went back to a Catholic church to check it out. It was the, the early 70s. And she said she saw the priest saying Mass. He consecrates the Eucharist. And she sees his fingers still together after the consecration. And she goes... He believes that that's really Jesus. He believes that something just happened. He believes that that's not bread. And she came back to the church. That one thing that that priest did changed the way that my mother believed. And that changed my life. And if each of us can just do something in our lives that changes one or two or three people the way that they believe, then we have a movement. But if we keep going through the routine, then we're going to keep seeing a decline. And it doesn't matter how many great homilies how many great parish missions are preached over these next couple years with this Eucharistic revival. If nothing changes in our lives and the way that we act and the way that we pray, nothing will change in our hearts. And nothing will change in the hearts of our children. And nothing will change in the hearts of our grandchildren. And the next time Pew takes another study, another poll, they'll say that 10% of Catholics believe in the true presence of the Holy Eucharist. And they'll take another one, another 10 years, and it'll be 3%. But I think tonight, on this night of nights, that night where Jesus instituted the Eucharist, he gave us his body and blood in the form of bread and wine. 
in a way that says, hey, I'm not making this easy for you. It's not, it's not a flashing light. It's not going to force you to believe. But I think there's a grace here tonight, a grace to change. The point of the Eucharist is for us to be transformed by it. How will you let the Eucharist transform you? I know you believe. How are you going to let that belief affect the way you live? When somebody hears you, sees you, talk, hears, listens to you talking about the Mass, sees you praying, how are they going to know that, yeah, that's somebody who believes that that's not bread? When you're talking about, hey, I got to go to my, my adoration hour, oh, When they see you on your knees, then they'll know you believe. Tonight ends in an abnormal way from all the liturgies. We end with a Eucharistic procession. We, we sing that beautiful Pange Lingua, the beautiful hymn that St. Thomas Aquinas, the theologian of theologians, wrote. It's beautiful poetic words. The last, second to last stanza ends with down in adoration falling this great sacrament we hail. Down in adoration falling. And then it ends with faith supplies for what the senses lack. I don't see any difference. That's where faith supplies. But that's contingent on the first line. I'm falling down in adoration. We need to be people who fall down in adoration. That's what changes us. That's what changes hearts. That's what changes, that's what our, our, our little children, our two-year-olds and one-year-olds look up and see us on our knees in front of this thing that looks like a piece of bread. And that's what convinces them. That ain't bread. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's fall down in adoration. Let's allow our faith, let's allow the faith that Jesus gives us to supply for what our senses cannot comprehend.